Hello, this is Dr. Vivian Lowe, and you're on VLMD Rounds, a podcast on medical signs and tools to optimize your health. If you've been following this podcast, welcome back. If you're new and you find this episode helpful, then please don't forget to like and subscribe at the end of listening. And also do check out my website, vivianlowmd.com. That's V-Y-V-Y-A-N-E-L-O-H-M-D.com. Under events on the website, you'll find a schedule of my live stream Q&As, and I would love to have you attend. Um, this is an opportunity for me to get to know you and to answer any questions you may have after listening to, let's say, a podcast episode or general questions you may have on metabolic health. There's also a newsletter that you can sign up for on the website. And um, I usually let people know what episodes are coming up for the month in that newsletter. Okay, those of you who have been regulars on the podcast, you will note, especially if you're watching on YouTube, that I am off-site. So this is not my usual location in my office. Um, and... I've had some challenges in recording. So uh, it's been quiet here all week, really. But then today, of all days, the neighbors started playing this oompa oompa music, accompanied occasionally by the rooster. So I uh, obviously don't have the musical schedule for the neighborhood. So please don't be surprised if you hear some elements of the Oompa Oompa music. Lovely, really, but not when I'm filming, so I'm hoping we won't get too much of it. But there's also extraneous noise, a little bit of construction in the background um, that I can't control for, so I just apologize for that in advance, but we're just going to make this episode happen anyway, okay? You all know that I take requests, And I just want to mention that this episode is really um, in response to requests from Cecile Seth, Drew Gong, Maya Zhou, and a few others who didn't leave their names. Um, You requested an episode on resistance training. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's go. Right. Um, A few caveats before we dive in. The people who requested this episode on resistance training, um, my guess is that you want to know more about the practical aspects, how to do it, how to implement um, a resistance training program into your life, right? Because it's such a huge topic and obviously we can go in many different directions. Uh, so I thought actually for this episode, based on what I am guessing the interest is in, we're not going to focus so much on the molecular aspects and maybe a lot of the science. We're going to try to make this a really practical episode uh, to help you start to implement resistance training into your life. All right. Just to let you know what the focus is. Now, when we talk about resistance training, we're really talking about exercise where we use a load 
and we have to have um, our muscles contract against that load such that we stimulate increased strength and also increased mass in that muscle. Now, when we talk about loads, we could actually use dumbbells, barbells, any of the equipment in the gyms. So sometimes you have things like the Nautilus machines and so forth, right? Those would all be used in resistance training, but we can also use bands. So we have TheraBands and all of these rubber and elastic bands. Uh, those are very useful as well. And you can also use body weight for resistance training. And while it's very convenient, and I do like to use body weight training with my patients, sometimes it's a lot harder for newbies because, you know, you really don't have as much control over the load because you're just working mostly with your body weight. And obviously you can offload it in a few ways, but you don't have the fine control that you may have in selecting a set of dumbbells, for instance, okay? So form is going to be very important if you're using body weight. Now, let's do a quick review. In the previous episode where I talked about muscle mass, right, and sarcopenia, we talked about how a muscle group is really made up of various muscle bundles, right? And within each muscle bundle, we have myofibers, right? And within each myofiber, we have myofibrils. And the myofibrils are essentially made of proteins and they are arranged in contractile units that we call sarcomeres. S-A-R-C-O-M-E-R-E-S, sarcomeres, all right? So we have, again, muscle bundles. Within the bundle, we have uh, muscle fibers. Now, each muscle fiber is actually one muscle cell. Just think about that. Each muscle fiber is one muscle cell. So this means that muscle cells are really the largest cells in our bodies. It's quite incredible. If you take, for example, the sartorius muscle, which really runs along your thigh diagonally from the outside um, of your thigh, high up on the hip, and then it runs diagonally down towards the inside of your thigh, right? That whole length is one muscle cell because your sartorius muscle is made up of various muscle fibers. And each muscle fiber, right, is one muscle cell. So that's an enormous cell. Now, because it is so big and because muscle cells are generally much larger than other cells in our bodies, they have many nuclei. So rather than just have one nucleus, they are multinucleated. That's what makes muscle cells different from most other cells in the body. And the reason for it is, well, when you have such a large cell, then it's really hard for one tiny nucleus to be in control and in charge of making and regulating the proteins within that cell. So rather than do that, we have many nuclei spread over this cell along the entire length, right? And we can then divide it into many nuclear domains. And with, 
each domain, you will have regulation of protein, transcription and translation, right? We'll regulate signaling within that nuclear domain. So that makes it very useful. And that is why we have multi-nucleated um, situation here in the muscle cells. Okay. Now, when we talk about muscle growth, essentially, we're talking about increasing uh, protein in the muscle fiber in the cell. And that means we're increasing the myofibrillar proteins. Remember, each muscle cell is made of a bundles of myofibrils. And those myofibrils are really protein aggregates, right? Arranged in contractile units called sarcomeres. So we're going to increase more of the protein content in the myofibrils when we talk about muscle growth, and therefore we're also um, increasing sarcomere units as well. We can also increase um, the non-contractile elements, the fluid part of the muscle cell. So the um, cytoplasm of a muscle cell is called the sarcoplasm, right? So we can increase the contents in the sarcoplasm, which would mostly be fluids, we could increase glycogen content, for example. We could also increase different proteins um, that are not involved in contraction in the sarcoplasm, and that would support the functioning of the muscle as well. Obviously, uh, we have muscle synthesis, muscle protein synthesis, and muscle protein degradation going on at the same time. Right At any point in time, we have both processes going on. For you to grow muscle, to gain muscle size, uh, then we definitely need to have a net greater muscle protein synthesis effect than a degradation effect. So that's the key here. We want to accumulate more muscle protein synthesis and make sure that that is above the level of muscle protein degradation in order to have a net growth in muscle. Now, lining the outside of the muscle cell would be muscle stem cells that we call satellite cells. Satellite, because they're sort of off from the center, right? They're lining the muscle cells itself. And they're within the uh, endomesium, which is this connective tissue surrounding the muscle fibers. Uh, but they're not actually in the muscle cell. Okay, But they're very close, just kind of lying there right next to the muscle cell. So we have those satellite uh, cells. And they tend to be quiescent or dormant. They're kind of sleeping and not active until you apply a stimulus, that stimulus being some kind of mechanical load, for example. And when that happens, then you stimulate them to proliferate and also to fuse with either each other, other satellite cells, or more commonly, they will fuse with the muscle cells that are existing. Okay, And when they do that, they can donate their nuclei to the existing muscle fibers or muscle cells. Right? And there's also a possibility that they might donate other organelles such as mitochondria to those muscle cells. 
Okay, so they're donating nuclei, but maybe also other um, organelles to the existing muscle cells. And this way, then you actually are increasing the nuclear domains, right? I, I told you about how the muscle cell has many nuclei. And if you donate more nuclei to the existing muscle cell, then you increase the nuclear domain and then you increase the ability to make more proteins, both contractile and also sarcoplasmic protein, right? And the other thing that the satellite cells do is that they express uh, many regulatory factors that would help in muscle repair and muscle growth. So uh, the satellite cells are really important in stimulating muscle growth. Now, when we talk about again, muscle growth or hypertrophy, there are many pathways involved. There's the AKT mTOR pathway, there's the MAPK pathway, there's calcium-dependent pathways, and also there are many hormones that regulate these uh, anabolic processes in, in the muscle cell, and those would be things like uh, IGF-1 or insulin and growth hormones and testosterone. We're not going to get into the details. If you want me to do an episode on that, I could. But again, I said that I think the people who requested this episode wanted a more practical episode. So that's where my focus is. But I just wanted to mention that, right? Essentially, hypertrophy requires three main things. The first one is mechanical tension. And this means that you're able to generate force, right, to stimulate muscle growth through mechanical overload. Force, generating force, and maybe also stretch to help uh, stimulate uh, growth, hypertrophy in the muscle. And this is because the muscle cells are really capable of sensing any uh, mechanical stimuli applied to it uh, through me uh, mechanotransduction, and they will translate those signals into uh, pathways for growth, right? So they can actually start a cascade of signaling uh, within the muscle cell, uh, cell itself to stimulate muscle growth. So it's really important that we have that mechanical force and stimulus generated uh, to start this process. The other thing that's really important is uh, that when we damage muscle cells, okay, then we are really setting up an inflammatory response because there's a little bit of myotrauma, right, trauma to the muscle cells, and this is going to stimulate a response from neutrophils and also macrophages. These are white blood cells and they come in response to the damage. And essentially, they're trying to mop up the damage and clean up the debris in the area. And they also release a lot of growth factors that will stimulate the satellite cells, for example, to proliferate and differentiate and donate their nuclei, right? And they also may stimulate more blood supply, uh, angiogenesis to that area over a period of time. So really, when we damage muscle tissue, we cause an immune response that is part of stimulating muscle growth. The other thing that we need is metabolic stress. So if you think about contracting a muscle really hard, you're at the gym and you're working hard with a set of 
um, barbells or whatever, performing some kind of resistance training. So this intense muscular contraction that is generated, right, is going to compress some of the veins in the area supplying the muscle, right? Because veins are kind of flimsy and they're easily compressible, unlike arteries. So while the arteries are still um, able to supply blood because they're patent, the veins are easily collapsible. And when you have intense contraction, then you collapse those veins. And as a result, there's not a good outflow of blood from that area, from the local area. As a result, we're going to start accumulating metabolites such as lactate and also inorganic phosphate. And these things are very important to stimulating muscle growth. So having that, um, you know, metabolic stress by the accumulation of metabolites is very important. And also, while I mentioned that you are still getting blood flow from the arteries, right? Some areas of the muscle itself might be under relatively hypoxic conditions, right? Especially with intense exercise. And hypoxia itself is very important in stimulating um, some of this uh, muscle growth, okay? So that's what we mean when we talk about metabolic uh, stress. And people have used this concept to um, help stimulate muscle growth by using things like blood flow restriction, um, you know, exercise, right? And that's really generally the main concept behind BFR training is to accumulate some uh, metabolites to generate more metabolic stress for the muscle. Okay. But for us, when we're talking about resistance training and making it part of our lives, there are a few things that we want to consider. So here are some of the training variables that we need to think about. One of them is intensity. And usually for this, we think in terms of a percentage of a one rep max. When you hear this term, one rep max or one RM, it really is a load or a weight that you can lift just once, once, and not more than that, okay? Because that's just the maximal effort. You get it up one time, and then you're done. You completely fatigue the muscle after that. That's what you mean by a one rep max. So we express intensity based on a percentage of that one rep max, right? So you could say 75 of that one rep max. 75% intensity. So you're not at the 100% level where you can only lift that weight once, but 75. So you have something in reserve. Okay. Or, you know, 80% of one rep max. Okay. Now anything under 65% of one rep max is considered insufficient to stimulate hypertrophy. So you at least have to have, I would say like 70, 75% um, of that intensity. And we can count the number of reps for a given weight to help us evaluate the intensity. So for example, for a given weight, if you can do one to five reps, uh, repetitions of that exercise, then that's considered really low. All right. Um, 
in, in terms of reps. In moderate range of repetitions, it's 6 to 12. And if you can do 15 to 20 repetitions, that's considered a high rep range, repetition. And repetitions really refers to the number of times you can do that exercise. Right? So, for example, if you are performing one exercise and you are repeating it 10 times, then you're doing 10 reps of, let's say, a biceps curl. Okay. Now, if you then rest and then come back and do another 10, then you would have done a second set. So you have one set referring to the set number of reps, okay, in this case 10. And then you may come back and do a second set of 10 and then rest and then come back and do a third set of 10. So that's what we mean by reps. That's the number of times you repeat the exercise. And then that number is considered a set. And then we talk about how many sets we do within one training period. Okay. Now, when you are trying to stimulate muscle growth, you have to generate enough volume of work. All right. You really have to be working that muscle sufficiently to stimulate enough mechanical tension, enough damage, and metabolic stress. Remember those three things that we talked about. So you just can't pick up your shoe, for example, and just kind of do it a few times and say, well, you know, I did some resistance training. has to be a load that is greater than 65% yeah, of your one rep max. And you really need to start to accumulate volume of work there. So we can modulate that by doing more repetitions with that load, right? Or we can also add more sets of repetitions, or we could do both. So we can manipulate those different variables when it comes to challenging the muscle even more. And then, of course, we have to consider the rest interval because once you've completed a set, right, you do want to give the muscle a little time to rest, right, and, you know, you flush out a little bit of the metabolites, for example, give a chance for the muscle to recover before you start the next set. Because if you don't, then your next set is really not going to be optimal. You're, you're still fatigued. You start the set. You won't be able to do the full number of repetitions, for example, or your form might start to kind of go downhill. And that's also going to affect, you know, how well you're going to stimulate muscle growth. Okay, so in terms of rest intervals between sets, there's a lot of uh, different opinions there based on different studies. It's really hard to kind of look at these exercise studies because many of them use such different uh, parameters, different ways of measuring, and also, you know, they don't control for the same things. In general, though, uh, you want to leave anywhere from a minute to a minute and a half, especially in the beginner stage, I think a minute and a half is probably fine uh, for those in the beginner and probably intermediate stage of resistance training. When you're in the very advanced stage um, and you're having really high loads, high intensity training, then you might need longer rest periods. But generally, I find that most beginners and intermediate um, level people doing resistance training, one to one and a half minutes in between sets 
would be adequate. Okay, and then before we actually dive into the different exercises, I just want to mention um, concentric, eccentric, and isometric exercises. Right, so concentric is really when the, the, the phase of the exercise where the muscle is shortening. So if you have your biceps, for example, and we're doing a biceps curl, then as you are lifting the weight, right, and bringing your fist closer to your face, for example, uh, then the muscle uh, belly of the biceps is shortening, it's contracting, and that is known as the concentric phase. Now, when we lower the weight, and the muscle belly now is lengthening, then that is the eccentric phase. And the eccentric phase, a lot of times when people are exercising, they perceive it as an easier phase because you're lowering now the weight, right? But actually, that phase stimulates a lot more muscle damage and muscle growth, more metabolic stress, as you are lowering with control. Okay, lowering the load with control. So my preference for my patients is to use a lot of eccentrics because, again, it is easier to do. And for patients, um, they find the lowering phase a lot easier. And to start them off, uh, it's a lot um, safer as well to get them to focus on the lowering phase. So I do use a lot of eccentrics with my patients and we'll be looking at that in a little bit um, in greater detail okay now isometric means that you are contracting the muscle but there is no movement okay so i could let's say be holding up um, a jug of water or a pail of water so i'm holding it up like this right and i am just keeping my arm static i'm not moving it i'm just holding it at shoulder height Okay, so the muscles are firing in my shoulder and my arm, but that bucket or uh, pail of water isn't going anywhere, right? So there's no movement, right? And that would be considered an isometric contraction. And a lot of times people think of uh, isometric exercise uh, as a way to develop strength, but not a lot of hypertrophy, not a lot of mass. But really, if you do isometrics correctly, then you're also going to be able not only to generate more strength, which is a good thing, but also we're going to increase muscle mass as well. And I like using isometrics. Uh, there have been studies that have shown that isometrics are not only safe, but they actually uh, do a pretty good job of helping people drop their blood pressures, right? Both systolic, um, more dramatically the systolic, the higher number, and also a little bit of the diastolic, uh, which is the lower number, right? You can drop your blood pressure by doing consistent isometric exercises. They are safe. Uh, they're really easy to do. Uh, they're not, well, they're easy to teach and get someone to understand how to do them. Uh, but if you do them correctly, they will actually be hard enough to stimulate muscle growth and strength. Okay, so I do like to use isometrics as well. Okay, now when we talk about the practical aspects of doing a resistance program, my main focus is safety because I want to make sure, of course, that no one gets hurt. 
The other thing is though, you know, I see these weekend warriors and they go off to the gym Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they're spending hours there and they're lifting massive loads, right? Inevitably, someone gets an injury and now they're out for three months. Okay, what was the point of that, right? I'd rather you start it on a smaller scale and did it safely, right? It's not so dramatic, it's not so glamorous, but there's consistency and there's longevity to your exercise program. You're going to get a lot more benefit from that because essentially if you're going to hurt yourself, right, you might as well not exercise because you're going to be out for a few months. So what was the whole point, right? And why suffer the injury? Okay. And of course, I have to tell you that before you exercise, please check with your doctor. I, you know, people ask me that, oh, I want to start an exercise program. Is it okay? Yep. Because they're checking with their doctor, right? And I'm their doctor. What am I going to say? Don't do anything stupid. Okay. Obviously, don't do anything stupid. Obviously, if you have some kind of injury, clear it with your physio, uh, clear it with the orthopedic guy, whoever you're seeing, right? But in general, you know, clear it with your doctor. What's your, what's your doctor going to say? Hmm, don't do anything stupid. Don't walk into a wall. Don't fall off any equipment, right? Yeah, okay. But I'm supposed to say that. So clear it with your doctor. Uh, goals. Okay, what are your goals? Because the program that you're going to be doing is going to be very specific to what goals you may have. In general, when I prescribe um, an exercise program for my patients, and I also do teach online, I actually do the exercise with them online. We used to do them in person in our exercise room. We had a, we have a little studio, but since the pandemic, I've been doing it online. So my main focus for my patients would be actually to optimize their body composition, right? So I always have the metabolic health as the main thing when I'm looking at my patients. So I really like for my patients to get good metabolic stress in an exercise session. And I obviously want them to stimulate as much uh, growth and strength as possible in their muscles, right? But I also want to make sure that we consider mobility and flexibility as well because functionality is really important to me and I think that functionality is also vital to having a good health span. So no matter what your age, if you're not able to move well, that's significantly going to impact your um, your life and your health okay so i want to have all those components when i am working with my patients and the other thing is that i try to make it as accessible as possible so i do minimize equipment and tools because i want to make sure that you know, a whole range of people, whether they have access to a gym or not, right, whatever their economic levels, that they're able to find a routine that works for them. So those are generally my, um, you know, kind of key points when I'm working out with my patients. And to be honest, I have obviously worked out in gyms and tried different equipment and things like that. I've come to a point where I generally try to minimize equipment as well. And um, I'm traveling right now. So it's also helpful 
when you don't need to carry a lot of gear with you because, you know, we can't really do that when we're traveling. And I never need a gym when I travel because I'm able to get in my resistance training without a gym. All right. So those are the things I really focus on when I bring resistance training to my patients. All right. So when you're designing a program or when you're thinking about a program, uh, for me, I like to think of functional movement. So the four main functional movement patterns that I focus on for my patients would be squat, hinge, push, and pull. Squat, hinge, push, pull. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to be looking at those movement patterns, right, and showing you some uh, examples of exercises in those categories of squat, hinge, push, pull. I'm going to try to make sure that I describe them well enough so that if you're listening in, you can see in your head what might be going on. But uh, you might just want to check out the YouTube channel, VLMD space rounds, VLMD rounds, uh, because I will be demonstrating as well. Okay, onward. Okay, we're back. I had to regroup because the rooster went into full karaoke mode and uh, I had to let him finish. I think he's done for the day, so we can continue. All right, I was going to go into the movement patterns and start off with the squat. Now, I like to make sure that all my patients can participate in the exercise and it doesn't matter where they start. I've had people who a wheelchair bound, for example, or, you know, kind of confined to a scooter or something, and I've made sure they were able to participate. And then as uh, they got stronger, we start progressing them and moving them in levels of difficulty. I had uh, one patient who called me almost in tears because his mother had been in hospital for about a month and she was completely debilitated at the end of the month, as you can imagine. And um, she was home now and had physio visiting her every day, but they were not progressing. And he just called me and said, listen, I can't even go back to work because I have to supervise her all the time. She's not safe on her own. She can't even get up. And what am I going to do? And uh, she, was, she needed a walker uh, even to get up. So I told him, I said, listen, you are going to make her do chair stands 10 for every hour she is awake. If she's awake, she's doing 10 and you can assist her and she can use the walker, but she's got to do the 10. I don't care how long it takes. Okay. She's got to fit 10 in per hour. And he made her do that. And within one month, she was showering independently. And another month passed, and he could go back to work. She is now fully independent, supervising, and taking care of her grandchild. No problems whatsoever. And we started from chair stands. So chair stands are really powerful. I have a chair here. And as I said, uh, if you're going to do <coughs> these exercises, make sure you have sturdy um, equipment and that you're not, for example, going to use a chair with wheels or anything like that. Okay, it's got to be a pretty solid chair. And really, all you're going to do is sit and stand, sit 
and stand. And this is particularly helpful if you have a family member who is maybe weaker and uh, you know having some challenges with movement and mobility. So getting them to do the chair stands is going to be extremely important, right? Sitting, uh, making sure that your feet are hip distance apart would be very important. You don't want the feet too narrow. You want to keep them hip distance apart and maybe even slightly further apart, just a little bit from the shoulder width or hip width, okay? And then as they stand, they can use their hands, or you can use your hands, to push up as well. No shame in that. If that's where you're starting, that's where you're starting. I also like to use a yoga strap to make sure that they're doing this correctly. <coughs> you can get this yoga strap anywhere online or in a retail store. Essentially, what you're going to do is put this strap around your thighs right above the knees and you're just going to loop it. Once you loop it right above your knees uh, at that hip distance width, okay, so your job as you sit and stand is to keep the yoga strap taut. Okay. Now, if your knees start to buckle in when you stand up, then obviously the strap will go slack and it will drop, okay? So you don't want to allow that situation because when your knees buckle inwards is when you start to have injuries. 100% of the time when my patients complain of knee pain, when they're doing squats, when they're rising or sitting down in a chair, I notice their knees are buckling inwards and that is causing a lot of stress on the knees and causing pain. <coughs> My focus is to make sure you do these things correctly so that we minimize injury. So you want to practice with a strap to keep you honest. Now, once you can do those chair stands with no problems, then you can start to do the chair uh, stands without actually sitting into the chair. So you're just gonna lower until you're maybe an inch above the chair and then you stand up and you keep doing that, right? Uh, you want to try to keep working up. You know, if you can get 10, that's good. Get up to 20 would be even better. Now, you can also now make it more challenging by pausing at the very top. Uh, sorry, uh, at the at the bottom of the squat or the chair sit. So you're, you're lowering down, okay, and right as you get about one inch from the chair seat, you can hold that position and hover. Kind of, ladies, you know, when you're in the public bathrooms, yeah, it's that position, okay, where you don't want your butt to touch the toilet seat. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So you practice that. And you can hold it, and women will do this for like a minute because you know, we have to do that in the bathroom, right? So I think most of you will be able to get this easily. And then you come back up. So you add that pause or that hover above the chair seat, and that will make it more challenging. <coughs> okay, so eventually when you're able to do that, let's say 20 times in a day, then I want people to start progressing to air squats. And when we do air squats, we are just going to do without the chair, 
right? So I know you had the chair there and you were hovering just above the chair, but now we're going to remove the chair altogether and you start going into your squat um, without the chair, right? And the aim is to do 100 a day. 100 a day. That comes from a Japanese study where they looked at 13-year-old couch potato boys. And they really wanted them to get more active and fitter. But they also had to take into consideration not everyone had access to a gym or a playground, and they wanted to make it accessible to everyone. <coughs> so they decided that the best thing to do would be just to teach them how to squat properly and have them do 100 air squats a day, five days a week, all right, during the school week. And over a period of, I believe it was eight weeks, it's a long time ago, um, and I'm remembering this just off the top of my head right now, but in eight weeks, they decrease fat mass and increase lean mass. No small feat, just by doing 100 air squats a day. So that's where I want my patients to start, at the 100 squats per day. And you don't have to do 100 in one go. The idea is you work up to 100 by the end of the day. So I like to have them do 20, 20, 20, 20, you know, five times and get to 100. So in the morning when you're brushing your teeth, you could do 20 of those and maybe you're waiting in line somewhere. Sure, you look a little funny, but who cares? You do 20. And you just add that, or, you know, you take a break from your desk and you can do 20 air squats, okay? So once the squats are easier, you're going to try to get them lower. Once you get to 100, I'd like to see lower squats, okay? So you really, again, keeping your feet at hip distance apart, maybe the toes slightly turned out. As you descend into the squat, you're also going to kind of lean forward at the hip crease, right? There's a little bit of a hinge. But as you're going down now, make sure, again, that the knees are not buckling inwards. And I like to tell my patients to keep their hands by their sides in contact with their, um, their legs. And as they slide down, right, then you want to make sure that the knees and the thighs keep pressing out against the hands. Don't lose contact. Don't let the knees buckle in again. And you want to descend lower and lower and lower until you can touch the ground. So that's the aim in terms of mobility. I really want um, the, my patients to try to get to the ground as much as possible. So I'm going to try and demonstrate here uh, if my setup will allow. So you're sitting back. Obviously, this is the normal squat, and there's a bit of a lean forward. But as you go down deeper, try to keep your chest up, right? So you can see I'm in a relatively upright posture. My legs, uh, my knees are pushed out. I'm sitting at the bottom of this squat and then I come all the way back up. So as you descend lower into the squat and you rise up, 
that's going to be a more challenging move. So that's another way you can progress. You can also, as you go deep into the squat, you could hold the bottom position for a count of, I don't know, 30, work up to 30, maybe 60 seconds, and then come up. You can also lower, right, very slowly. So I like to lower on a count of one, two, three, and then we hold at the bottom for, let's say, 10 seconds to begin with, and then come back up. So what we've done is, as we lowered, we had a little bit of an eccentric for the glutes, and then at the very bottom, we held an isometric contraction for about 10 seconds. If you work up the isometrics, you can generate not only strength, increasing strength, but also increasing um, hypertrophy. So generally, if you want to see hypertrophy with the isometrics, you're going to have to go, you know, 15 seconds and longer. And I generally like to work in the 30 second range, moving up to 45 seconds, moving up to 60 seconds if you can hold it, right? So working up on the time. So what I have people do are those 20 sets, and as it, they get very comfortable, they're going to descend lower, more range of motion, which is much harder. Okay, It's going to really work their uh, mobility and force them to work at closer to end range. So you need a lot of hip and ankle mobility, knee mobility for that. And then we can add eccentrics, so we lower slowly, and then when we actually are at the bottom, I have them really kind of just hold it um, for the isometric and then they come back up, okay? So we can play with those elements uh, as they progress in the squat. And I also like to add, again, because I like more glute action, because we use our glutes a lot. So in the squat, I like to do a wider sumo squat. So you're going to widen your legs out, you know, out from uh, hip distance, maybe one and a half times hip distance, right? So you're in a much wider squat. Your legs are now, um, your knees are turned out and your toes track along with that as well. Okay, so <coughs> your toes kind of point out 45 degree angle. And you're going to sit down into that squat. And as you sit into that squat, there is no forward lean, okay? So there is really, try to keep the body as perpendicular as possible. Descend into the squat. Let the weight sit between the legs. And this is, again, more glute action here. And then, so you can lower you know, slowly. And at the bottom here, I have people sit, again, anywhere from 15 working up to 60 seconds, and then coming back up. So we can add those elements in. You can do 20, and on the 20th one, you can hold the isometric. Okay, So that's how I start adding in the isometric contractions there. So those are elements that you can start to put into your squat. And you can start challenging yourself even without adding weights. Eventually, of course, some people might want to add weights. So you can hold, for example, um, as you're doing the sumo squat, you can hold uh, weight, a dumbbell between your hands as you descend, or you can do your regular squats with the weights, a dumbbell on each um, arm, and then descend into the squat that way. It's one way, easy way to load, okay? Now, the next movement that I like people to learn how to do 
is the hinge. And you already started doing that when <coughs> you were doing the chair stand because when you're rising from a chair, you have to actually tilt your body forward slightly from the hips, right? And then you come up to the standing position. And even when you descend, we start tilting the body forward. So there is already a hinge at the hip crease as we sit back into the chair. So you already start to see the um, hip hinge with the squat. Now, my focus for my patients and for this episode is to make sure you do it properly with proper form because I want you to have longevity in terms of your exercise regimen. I don't want you to hurt yourself. So the biggest problem with any of these exercises for the hip hinge is that people will not be having proper alignment and then they hurt their backs, okay? So normally I use a dowel. As I said, I am off-site. So this is what I found. I found a wooden sword and I love swords. So we're going to use this wooden sword here for my demo. But at um, my own <coughs> studio, I would use a wooden dowel, maybe about an inch um, in diameter. You can get that at any hardware store. It's very useful for alignment um, and for some of the exercises that I show my patients. And I've had people use a broomstick. I've had people try to use a golf club. Please don't use a golf club because if it drops on your foot or something, yeah, I don't want that, okay? So here's a, pretend this is a dowel, my little wooden sword here. And what I like to do is place the dowel against my spine along the length of my spine right down the midline, okay? So the idea is that I want my head and the upper back to be touching the dowel, right? And then also the lower part of my spine, right, as it goes into the tailbone, that whole lower part is also going to be against the spine. There's going to be a little gap right before the end part that touches your spine. And that's normal because you have a little curve there in the lumbar area of your spine. But essentially, you want the head, the upper back, at where the trapezius is, and then the lower part of your spine to be touching this uh, dowel, right? To be in contact with the dowel. And then from here, you're going to start to hinge forward. And as you're hinging forward, you want to maintain this alignment, okay? So I'm standing with feet hip distance apart, and this dowel against my back in contact with those three points in my body that I told you about. And as I'm hinging forward, you want to keep those points in contact with the dowel. So most commonly, when people start to do the hinge, the head is going to drop off the dowel. And when they're doing that, they're starting to introduce a curve into the spine. And sometimes the head drops off and then the upper back rounds and so that also loses contact with the spine especially as they try to descend lower into the hinge 
And once they do that, then really they're not going to be in a safe position uh, and it's going to put a lot of strain on the wrong parts of your spine, okay? So you do want to make sure you keep this contact and you lower with full contact with the dowel. Now, if you find that as you are hinging forward, your head comes off or your upper back comes off or the lower part um, lifts off from the bottom of your spine, then what you have to do is come back up. Don't hinge as low because you don't have that mobility in your spine, which already should tell you you have a problem because the more limitations you have, right, the less mobility you have, then the more confined your movements and the more restricted your movement patterns, you're not going to fully be able to use your muscles. And you also start to generate um, a geriatric pattern of movement, okay, shall we say. Right, so you're moving like an old person, no matter what your age. Okay, so you're in that hunch position. Okay, so you want to keep that alignment in your spine as you hinge forward. Eventually, you want to get down into a 90 degree angle and making sure that you don't pull the hips backwards as you do that. So as you are hinging forward, keep the weight forward. So I try to put it more over the balls of my feet and you don't want to sink backwards into your hip, okay? You want to imagine someone is pulling from the top of your head so that, you know, your movement is forward as you hinge down and also forward when you come back up. You want to make the biggest arc possible as you are hinging. You need to get that movement pattern right and then you can start doing the different um, exercises for your back. Again, I will use a strap and um, I'm going to have to change positions to show this properly. Okay, here we go. We're going to use the yoga strap again and I have my chair. Uh, not going to be easy to see this, but here I have the strap and I'm going to place it um, on the floor and I'm going to step on it. So I have the strap on the floor and I've put each foot on the strap and then on each uh, end of the strap, I'm holding it with each arm, okay? So the right end of the strap, I'm holding in my right hand and the left end of the strap, I'm holding in my left hand. and. I am going to sort of wind it around my hands as I hinge forward. So, you, you know, I'm hinging forward like I'm about to stand up. My feet are hip distance apart, stepping on the strap. I wind the strap on each end around my hand as I hinge forward so that as I get to this hinge position, I have the ends of the yoga straps, um, really taut, okay? And what I'm going to do, I press down, my weight is on the strap that I'm stepping on, and I am going to now pull up like I'm about to lift my feet off the ground. Obviously, I'm going to keep 
pressing my feet down, so I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to be able to lift myself up. But it's that movement that you're going for from this hinge position, keeping your spine in perfect alignment. That's why the dowel exercise is really important. And as I try to straighten up from my hinge, I'm pulling up on the straps on each side and press the knees out and you're counting down from here for 15 seconds and you really uh, should be, this is an isometric hold because you're not moving but you're generating that contraction as you pull up on the straps that you are stepping down on at the same time. So keeping your spine in perfect alignment, then you should start feeling it along your posterior chain, especially in your lower back. And um, if you are able to, then you can do this from the standing position. And as you're doing it from the standing position, your knees are slightly bent and you will start to feel it in the backs of your knees and also your glutes. Now, I tend to do this version of a straight-legged deadlift. Uh, I tend to do it with straight legs, really straight legs. And I then feel it a lot in my hamstrings. But that's because... I am doing it for a specific purpose, okay? Most people are going to keep a gentle bend in the knees and um, you're going to have some hamstring activation but not as intensely as you would if you kept the knees straight. So you can adjust it depending on what you're working for. I tend to do these straight-legged. Now, the lower you go with straight legs, the more hamstring action. So you can adjust where you're going to do your isometric hold and <coughs> work that part of the range, okay, to generate strength there. So I like, again, to do a full, very deep, um, very deep um, bend, uh, hinge, and then I'm pulling back up, right, and I'm holding this, for 60 seconds, 45 to 60 seconds, and uh, you do three sets of those, okay? So that's what I do um, in terms of a hinge movement. It's really an approximation of a deadlift, and I start from the chair with my patients, and most of them are really able to feel that mu the muscle activation even from a chair, okay? So we've done the squat and the hinge. Now we can talk about the pushes. So with the push, there's a couple of things um, that you could do. So let's just try it from the chair since we're, I'm seated here. We could do a version of dips. So what I'm doing is I'm on the chair, on the edge of the chair, and my hands are holding onto the sides of the chair, and the fingers are pointing outwards, okay? So you can keep your knees bent 90 degrees, and then just kind of push yourself a little bit forward, make sure your chair is secure, or pressed up against the wall, and then your butt is right at the lip of the seat. And from here, you can descend down as you bend your elbows and then press 
up. Okay, so that would be a, a push action that we can do, which is essentially uh, chair dips. Okay, so I'll start that with bent knees with my patients. If they're not able even to do that, then what I have them do, if you have someone who's very debilitated, then you have them hold on to the sides of the chair. And what you want them to do is press down and push up like they're lifting their butt off the chair. So I want to see this push action where they're lifting the butt off the chair and just hold there. Hold there for 10 seconds, five seconds even, if that's all they can do in the beginning. And you work your way again to as long as you can, you know, hopefully around 30 seconds and then towards the 60 second mark. But if you're able to have more mobility then slip off the edge and dip down and up and down and up. Now, as you're doing those, you could aim for, let's just make it 10, three sets of 10s. And once they get easy, we can start to add a little bit um, a more of an advanced version. And this is what we can do. You can hold at the top, right? You can do 10 and then have a hold of 30 seconds to 60 seconds at the top. Then you can do the next 10 and then hold in mid-dip here for 32 60 seconds and then you can do the last set of 10 and hold right at the bottom here for 30 to 60 seconds so we added the isometric holds right then the other way you can load is to straighten your legs so the more that your legs are straightened and your heels are further away from you then the harder it's going to get so if you straighten your legs and now do your dips right? It's going to be harder. You can still have a little bend, but if you keep the, the knees very straight, then that's a little bit more challenging for you to do those dips, okay? And you can add those holes in there. So I like to add the isometric holes just so that you can increase the difficulty each time and the intensity each time as you're working forward. Now, um, I think that's, those are some of the safer ways that I like to work with patients. Obviously, eventually you can get to push-ups and shoulder push-ups, but starting with the dips is a good way to really just start um, doing some pushes. And then we have the poles. The poles are a lot harder to do without equipment. So, oh, here's, by the way, here's another push that I sometimes have patients do now that I have the strap back here. I um, am going to put the strap around my back and around the level of my mid-back. And then I'm going to grab this, right? The both ends, right? And I just have them push. Okay. I tell them to push the back into the strap and push the arms out at the same time. Okay, and this is a good, and then you hold. You hold for 10 seconds, 20, 30, you work your way up to 60. Three sets, okay? This is also a good way to start them thinking about a hollow body position, which I like to make sure all my patients can get to before I even start a push-up, because a lot of people will start injuring their shoulders 
on push-ups. So I want to make sure they can do a very good and stable and solid hollow body position. And we start that off in the upper back at least with these pushes, these isometric pushes, because you're pushing your back out like that, right? The mid back. And you're pushing into the straps as well. And that's a nice, tight, hollow body position. And you can do that even from a chair. You can add more core work if you're doing it standing as well. All right. So now the pulls. So we could do the pulls. You could do a bent over kind of a pull. And it's back to using the strap. And this time again, you step on the strap and then you kind of wind the strap, as I'm showing you, around the hand to get to the tension that you want. Okay, so I'm stepping one leg on the strap and that same side, that hand, I have uh, a hold of the end of the strap and I'm winding it down to a height or tension that I want. I keep my back in alignment, keeping that same um, alignment that we practice in the hinge. And I am going to try to pull the arm. Okay, not my back. I'm not going to use my back. I'm going to pull the arm. So the idea is I'm going to try and bend the elbow. And of course, because I'm stepping on the strap, nothing is moving. So here's yet another isometric and as I'm pulling, 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 um, and trying to bend the elbow, you start to hold for 10 seconds, 20, 30 seconds, 60 seconds on each side three times. So you can alternate. All right. So start with that bent over kind of row approximation uh, with the strap. So you've noticed that I've just used a yoga strap. That's it, because most people can afford a yoga strap. It's easy, it's light. I travel with it and do most of my exercises just with a strap. If you want to eventually add um, other kind of portable tools, then I have, these are some of the things I travel with. I have these um, bands these resistance bands. And here's one that is made of fabric and is in, fashioned into a loop. So these are nice to put between your, you know, to, to kind of put around your legs. And you can also use them on your upper body, right? So you could use these as well. And this is another type of resistance band that uh, you could work with. So I mostly try to work with these portable tools. One other thing I want to recommend is, oops, I lost one of it. Okay. I uh, like getting these workout gloves because I get a lot of calluses. I still do, but I guess it minimizes it just a little more comfortable if I use these workout gloves. And um, there's a little bit more traction and uh, less friction for your hands. And also, it's just, like I said, minimizes the calluses, doesn't completely get rid of them. So those are the tools that I use. Now, with the air squats, I told you, do them every day, a 100, and then start to add uh, different challenging elements to them, whether it's the eccentrics or isometric holds. 
and changing it up so you use wide squats as well for more glute action, right? With the hinges, I like people to start practicing the hinges without any weight, just with, you know, the dowel to get their alignment. Practice 10 of those and get more range of motion, going lower and lower and lower until you get, you know, at least 45 degree or below 45, between 45 and 90 degree. And that's a, a decent range of motion. And then from that point on, if you can keep the spine in perfect alignment, then you can start using the strap and doing that isometric deadlift from a chair or from standing. And uh, that would be three sets of anywhere from 15 to 60 seconds as you're going to work your way up, all right? And you would do that three times a week and not on consecutive days. So, for example, Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday, for example. So you can build in uh, these three times a week. The dips for the pushes, same thing. You can practice just lifting up like this, right? And holding, if you can hold for 60 seconds, then you can start to do the bent knee dips, just uh, 10, three sets of 10s, okay? And eventually you want to do the three sets of 10s with the isometric hold. Again, all of these are done three times a week, not on consecutive days. You always want to make sure you have at least a full day of rest between the um, resistance training days. That would be the push. Same with the pulls. Okay. So those are the, the, the ones that I start my patients off with. And, um, we use minimal tools and I really focus on perfect alignment. The reason for this is if you can really get your form perfect, then you are going to learn to use your body in such a way and learn to generate enough tension in such a way that there's proper transduction of uh, that load, okay, through the whole body and you can get generally force a lot better. So you want to get people to really kind of learn the movement patterns and set their bodies in the right condition. Now, the first part for beginners is not going to be, the progression in the first part of resistance training is not really going to be at the muscle levels, at the neural level, that connection between your brain and your muscles, okay? And a lot of the um, resistance, the impediments to getting good resistance training in the beginning is at the neural level. So once we have established a good connection between your uh, brain and your body, then we can really get into the training. So I spend a lot of time on the basics, but at the same time, with the isometrics, um, you start to build strength in patients, and it's amazing how quickly the strength builds up. And if you can get them to hold the isometrics long enough, you're going to get good hypertrophy as well. So that's my starting point uh, with patients. And even up to the intermediate level, I can challenge patients that way. And to be fully honest, I, uh, you know, as I said, I have worked in gyms and with equipment and so forth. And now I try to simplify my life. And most of my workouts, I just do with, you know, minimal equipment, some bands, 
um, straps. I do have a pull-up bar, but generally I am using minimal equipment. But again, because, you know, you're stressing perfect form, perfect alignment, you can really get a lot of muscle activation there. And also you can do it safely, right? So my goal for myself and all my patients, as I said, is longevity in their exercise regimen. And that's what I try to make sure everyone gets to. So um, eventually, as you start to make a better connection between the brain and the body, then you can start to challenge yourself more. You can start to do the longer isometric holes you can start to add more resistance. For example, I actually, you know, do more end range strength things. So as something gets easier, I extend the range and then it's much harder, much, much harder. So much so that sometimes even with just a strap going into my workout, there's a slight element of dread going into the workout. And when I feel that, then I know that I am, in general, getting enough metabolic stress from each workout because it is tiring. Um, it's tiring mentally and physically, and it's challenging. One other thing I want to point out with your workouts is we don't want pain. So it shouldn't be, ouch! Okay, you shouldn't have that reaction. But you, you know, if you have discomfort and you have the oh god when is this going to end yeah that's a good place all right so if patients are going oh my god what is this okay keep going okay i just don't want the out the oh you know this this sharp pain that kind of stuff but you're going to be stressing out your muscles so it's not going to be comfortable and part of the initial period is to understand that and to get your body used to that as well, okay? So let's do a quick wrap up of the things that we discussed today. Uh, we talked about resistance training and how we can do that with different types of loads, dumbbells, barbells, uh, bands, and also body weight. And then uh, we went into basic unit of the muscle and how each muscle fiber is essentially a muscle cell. And, you know, we want to get the muscles to hypertrophy. And we do that by adding more contractile proteins in the myofibrils and adding more contractile units or sarcomeres in each muscle fiber. We can also add more non-contractile proteins and elements in the sarcoplasm of the muscle cell. And because muscle cells are post-mitotic cells, I might not have mentioned this in the beginning, so they cannot actually replicate themselves, okay? So they can't make new daughter cells and make new muscle cells that way. So basically, once a muscle cell has developed, it really has to try to repair itself, maintain itself, avoid cell death, right? And be able to maintain um, its lifespan. And when we talk about hypertrophy, we do have these satellite or stem cells that are lying next to the muscle cells. And what they can do when properly stimulated is that they can donate nuclei 
to the muscles so that we can make more proteins because we have now more nuclear domains to make more contractile units, for example, or more sarcoplasmic proteins to aid in growing that muscle. And also the stem cells can express factors that will help regulate, um, you know, synthesis of proteins in the muscle cell. When we uh, try to hypertrophy the muscle, we essentially have to generate enough mechanical tension and that we have to do by loading appropriately, make the muscle <coughs> contract uh, <coughs> and generate force against a load. We also want to induce some level of muscle damage so that we cause an immune response and the immune cells come and they try to repair the muscles, but in doing so, they also express uh, some factors that will help in proliferation of, let's say, the satellite cells and also express factors that will help generate more protein synthesis. And we also want more metabolic stress. So by this, we accumulate some of the metabolites um, from the muscle contraction. And uh, this will help to, again, stimulate the cell to uh, grow in different ways. Okay, so those are the three ways that we can help uh, muscle hypertrophy. The variables are the intensity when you do resistance training, and we measure that against the one uh, rep max, the uh, maximal weight you can lift one time. And you definitely want to do uh, greater than 65% of the one rep max for you to generate any results. And then you want to see how many reps you can do for a given weight. The heavier the weight, the lower the rep range that you can use, right? So um, you want to keep track of these things so that you know if you are progressing. You, in the end, want to generate a good work volume, and we can do that by uh, increasing the number of reps for a given weight and also sets for a given weight. We can also just increase the weight itself. Uh, so those are some of the things we can manipulate. The less time you give between sets, the more metabolic stress you have, but also you don't let the muscle uh, recuperate or, re, uh, re, um, you know, relax appropriately. And that way you can't, when you start the next uh, set, uh, really kind of go full out. And so you might be not getting the volume of work that you need just because you're not resting appropriately between sets. So you want to get about a minute to a minute and a half of rest between sets. Uh, we don't want to do resistance training on consecutive days. Now, because the program I usually put my patients on are full body programs, I do not tend to break it up into body parts because I want to generate more metabolic stress in general for my patients. And I find that full body workouts do that better. So I tend to prefer full body workouts. Uh, plus, I want them to learn to use the full body uh, for in functional patterns. So I tend to prefer the uh, full body workouts. So you want to make sure that you do it about three times a week with at least a day's rest in between. The more trained you are and the higher your intensity, the more 
rest days in between you might need, okay? But in general, for beginners and intermediate level people, that should be fine. I also want to say that if you're an, uh, a beginner or at an intermediate level, then you could make really good gains. It's really much harder to make gains when you are more advanced. So you want to take advantage of that honeymoon period and um, really be consistent because you can see good gains in as little as, you know, two to three months. Okay, so that's really encouraging for beginners. I also highly encourage that you keep track because if you don't track, you don't know how you're doing. You want to benchmark. So before you start, see how long you can do an isometric hold. See how many air squats you can do in one, you know, set. Uh, you want to benchmark where you are at the beginning so you can see progression for yourself. And obviously, with my patients, we dex them so we can see, we can actually see increase in lean mass, let's say in the right limb or in the left leg, right? We can see imbalances and we can work that way as well. So if you can get a DEXA body composition, I would highly recommend that. Okay, and what else? Form, 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 form. Okay, if you're doing it properly, even the simplest exercises, sometimes without weights, can be very challenging. So I've had people go to the gym, they've worked with trainers and so forth. And then when they come to my class, they're struggling and all we have is a strap or no strap, right? And that's because I'm insisting on perfect form and, you know, really prioritizing safety. And they have a hard time doing that because sometimes they may be using accessory muscles or momentum to help them do a movement, okay? So I really kind of am a stickler for form, and I found that people who consider themselves even advanced exercises uh, sometimes have a hard time performing some of the more simple movements that I ask them to do. And obviously, all of this has to be in conjunction with proper nutrition, so you have to make sure you have adequate uh, protein intake and sleep and rest, okay? Because if you're not going to prioritize that, then you're not going to have sufficient uh, muscle protein synthesis that is in excess of the muscle protein degradation, which is essentially that net that we're looking for. Okay, anything else I want to say about resistance training? Nothing much except uh, stay consistent. If you have questions, please join me at the next live Q&A uh, so I can help you out there if you have any specific questions for me. If you want me to make a follow-along video, I would be happy to do that, but, um, you know, just, just let me know because if you are not going to find that helpful, then I'm not going to make that a priority. But if you think that would be helpful for you, then I will make that, okay? All right. I think we've covered everything, and I managed to keep the rooster at bay. So I am going to sign out now from VLMD Rounds. This is Dr. Vivian Lowe. I sing the body. Yes. Bye. Bye.